The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord. I am the I am, that is. I am the Lord and I have spoken. And then five and a half centuries later, John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd of God's flock. Long promised, long hoped for, critical for life, it's the main point of today's passage. It's the main point of this message from John 10. Jesus is the shepherd of God's flock. So follow Him into life. That's what we're going to see this morning in John 10. We've been moving through the book of John. We're continuing with that today. We've been watching John hold up for us Jesus in a hundred different ways. He holds him up and shows him just how great of a treasure he means to be for his people. And today he's going to show him to us as our shepherd. Last week in chapter 9 we saw that he is the one who heals us of our blindness, of our spiritual blindness ultimately, to enable us to see and to love the beauty and the glory of God and to close with him by faith. So we looked at last week. Saw several different responses there. Among them, the, the leaders who held people away from this Jesus, tried to intimidate them. Today in chapter 10, Jesus is going to start teaching. He's going to teach in a way that separates himself from those false shepherds. People like them, who hold people away from Jesus. He's going to separate himself so as to expose them, like he did in Ezekiel, and to highlight himself, to draw people to him. He's the good shepherd of the sheep. It's the point of John 10. Let me read John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, this is not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. And besides, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The passage begins by just giving us Jesus' teaching with, without any mention of where or when exactly this happens. The best that we can tell is from verse 21's mention of the blind he, being healed that it must have occurred shortly after chapter 9. So we're within a few months of the cross here. Jesus' teaching in verse 1 begins truly, truly with that solemn attention-grabbing phrase. And what we're expecting to follow from that is something that's of, of great import, that's maybe profound. But what actually follows is completely ordinary, surprisingly ordinary. You might say it's exceptionally unexceptional for first century Palestine. Everywhere, everywhere in the Mediterranean world clearly understood sheep farming. And what he says here is understood to everybody, even the non-sheep farmers. That's what he introduces with the truly, truly. In these verses, things change slightly as the passage moves on. But in the first few verses, what we have here is a sheepfold. It's like an enclosure in which several different families with smaller flocks would put in their sheep and then they would all band together and they'd hire one person to kind of be the watchman, kind of look after things. And day by day, when morning came and it was time for you to come and get your particular flock and lead it out to water and pasture, you'd come to the gate say hello to the gatekeeper, ask him how his family is, chat with him about the weather, etc. And then you'd call out your sheep by name and they'd follow you and you'd lead them out. And that's what you did. You led them out. They didn't herd sheep back then from behind, like with dogs or something like that. They had a different, slightly more relational method. You see in verse 3 it says that he knew them by name. He'd actually be able to identify all the sheep and call them. And the sheep heard his voice and they would come. They weren't pushed. And those who belonged to other families, they didn't come. He didn't know them. He didn't have a name for them. They didn't recognize his voice. He was a stranger to them, so they stayed. That's how shepherds shepherded. That's how shepherds shepherded. Of course, there are other people, thieves and robbers. You know that the thieves and the robbers because they come around in the back. 
The only other way to get the sheep out is to carry them over the fence. They're there just to feed on the sheep, to take advantage of them for their own gain. It's all clearly understood, pretty obvious to Jesus' first century audience. They, they get all of that. But they didn't really get it. Verse 6 tells us that. What didn't they get? That Jesus is again using this physical intangible here to talk about the spiritual level. He's really talking about Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34, and a whole host of other Old Testament passages. That's what he's getting at. They missed that. So he again says to them in verse 7, and realize that these following verses, they're not a word-for-word explanation of the first verses. They're, they're kind of like a different take on it. He says something like, well, let me try it this way then. He's going to expand on a couple of the main important themes here. He's going to expand on first the gate, the door idea, that's in this sheep and shepherd analogy. And he's going to expand on the shepherd. And then a little bit this week and next week also, he's going to expand on the sheep. So he's going to talk about those three elements. First, verse 7, the door. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He says, I am there. We've talked about this before. Working on two levels here. On the one level, it's entirely ordinary. This is how Jesus would say something, I am this, I am that. It's how anybody would say it. So it's ordinary grammar, basic. But on another level, we've seen in in many places in this book, Jesus repeatedly uses this phrase, Like in chapter 8 where he says, before Abraham was, I am, and he means something. He means something very profound. He's connecting himself back to the Old Testament Lord, the God of the Bible. You might see it written in there, L-O-R-D in all capital letters. That's the name of God. And Jesus is connecting himself back to that so many times that even in the places where it's very ordinary and it shows up here, it reminds us of that. It's interesting. He's making a connection there. I am the door. In verses 7 to 10, elaborate on that a little bit. I am the way to something. I'm how you get there. I'm the proper entrance to the fold and to the pasture. The gate in a wall, picture that. If you enter through me, you will have life. That's what he's saying. The only other way is for the sheep to be carried over by robbers. One door, one gate. Jesus says that all who came before him were thieves and robbers. False prophets, false messiahs, insurrectionists, the leaders of chapter 9. Don't follow any of them. They do not lead you to pasture. They do not lead you to salvation. You must come to the door, he says. Don't follow any of them. Then switching gears a little bit, verses 11 to 18, he expands on another aspect, that of the shepherd pictures himself here as a good shepherd in contrast to a bad shepherd, an evil shepherd, an incompetent shepherd maybe. Shepherds who should feed the sheep by leading them to the door and leading them to the pasture, but instead are content to feed themselves on the sheep. He's a good shepherd. I lay down my life for these sheep. That's what he's like. Contrast to the hired hand or the false shepherd who doesn't care about them, just performing his job, This shepherd cares. He's related to them. He has a relational connection. Just like Jesus, the Son, God the Father, they're relationally connected. They know one another. The same way he has this relational connection to his sheep. I know them. They know me. And so there's a sense of sacrifice there. I lay down my life for them. Laying down his life 
We see that in the last several verses as he begins to talk about laying down and taking up his life that Jesus alternates back and forth between his fully submissive human nature and his fully sovereign divine nature. He has a command from the Father that he perfectly obeys. And he has authority to lay down his life and authority to take it up. Who has authority to raise their dead body themselves? Only God. God has authority over life. And Jesus says, I have authority over my own life and I submit to and obey the command given to me by God the Father. Both of these things working together. Back and forth. When the people hear him talk like that and hear him connect himself to this good shepherd from the Old Testament, some of them just say, he's crazy. He's demonic. He's insane. But others aren't quite so sure. They pause there because he doesn't look crazy. He looks very rational. And besides, healing a man of blindness looks a lot like a shepherd taking care of his sheep. Can't quite dismiss him yet. So they're stuck there at division again. Not sure what to make of Jesus. That's the text. Obviously the main point within it is that Jesus is the shepherd of God's sheep. It's the main point that he's trying to drive home. He's the shepherd. We have to follow him into life. I'm going to approach that main theme by asking the text three questions. And these three questions relate to something about the function of the shepherd. What does the shepherd exactly do? The second question is going to be about the manner of the shepherd. How does the shepherd do that? And thirdly, the scope of the shepherd. For whom does he do these things? So what does he do? How does he do it? For whom? Three questions. We begin with the first one. First question we'll raise here is, what does the shepherd do? He's a shepherd. Shepherds do a, a thousand different things. Jesus is no different. He has a lot of stuff. So can we boil that all down to kind of like one succinct statement? Can we do that? Yes, we can. Verses 9 and 10 help us with that. What does the shepherd do? The shepherd gives abundant life. That's what he's there for. Now don't get, as you look through this passage, don't get tripped up by the mixed metaphor of the door and the shepherd. There's some commonality here in these two things. Whether it's a gate or a shepherd, whether it's a, a hole in a wall or a shepherd leading someone in a journey, the common point that these two have is that they are the way to something. You have to pass through to get to something. He's walking, you're following to something, to a goal. He's the way to some goal. What's the goal? What does he provide access to? Verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will find regular, constant access. That's the going in and the going out, the back and forth. Regular, constant access to lush pasture. Salvation and pasture. The shepherd delivers to life and life abundant. That's what he was doing in Ezekiel. That's what he's doing here. False shepherds, they don't. It's a good thing that the shepherd delivers to life. Think about this. It is a good thing because we each desperately need those two things, salvation and pasture. We need that. We long for it in our hearts. 
We long for, we need salvation from sin and its penalty and its fruit of pain and destruction. We need salvation from that and we need life, rest in here. Right now, we need that in this life. Rest for your soul, abundance in life. Clearly, obviously, he's not talking about abundance of stuff, more things. He's talking about quality of life that is more real and more joyful, more hope-filled, more complete than you can scarcely imagine. Contentedness that your heart is always chasing, but never gets, or never gets quite right, or never gets right for long enough. That's life, the blessed life. And all of that can be finally attained in proper relationship to God, in proper relationship to people, in proper relationship to the created order. All of that is attained in the shepherd. It's glorious. You've got to think about this. You've heard this before, but think about it again. To live here in this life, realistically facing all the challenges and hardships that are here. To look at disease in your children. If you're a parent, I don't know if there's anything harder than that. But to be able to encounter disease in your children, or stress in marriage, or financial uncertainty, or physical injury and death, to look at a huge bill, to lie in a hospital bed, to face the fury of another person at work or on the street, to live in those things at peace. Not a peace that comes from being unaware of or denying reality. Not a peace that's some odd, bizarre kind of giddiness that looks fake. But real peace. Rest. It looks at all the facts, gathers them all in and says, Yes, I am truly, genuinely, honestly sorrowing and yet I am truly, genuinely, honestly, always rejoicing. That's life, and that is possible. Here, now, but it will only come if you, follow this, it will only come to your soul, that kind of life, that kind of rest, if your soul is not resting on, built on, healthy kids, loving marriage, financial solvency, and other happy circumstances. Those things are all unstable and they fail. Well, they're good things in themselves. They're good. We should strive for that. We should hope that our kids are healthy. We should work for happy marriages. We should strive for those things. The problem arises when we go into those fields looking for life-giving grass and living water. It is not there. None of those things sustain. All of them perish. The grass withers always. Always, you will get sick. You will die. Things will happen in life. It always fails. You can't bank on that. None of those things are sure foundations for our heart, but we sure try. It's like when you, you try to put a just too small screw in a pre-drilled hole. You can get it in there, and it has enough grab that it sticks. It works, sort of, for a little while. But over time, you put repeated stress on that screw. You pull it, you pull it, it wiggles, it wiggles. 
just not quite right. It's, it doesn't fit. It's off. It's not quite adequate to fill up that hole. But it holds a little bit, and you pull, and you wiggle, and you pull, and you wiggle, and what happens eventually? It fails, and now you've got a bigger hole. We all have pre-drilled holes in our souls. All of us. Every single one of us. And we walk around day by day trying to plug in what seems to fit or what we think is attractive or perhaps just what you have lying around in the garage. And it works perhaps for a little while. You can be flying high. Things can be going well. You can be rich with cash. People like you, but it will come down. Life is not found there. It all fails. But through all of that, there is one who says that if you enter through me, if you come to me and enter through me, you will be saved and you will find pasture rich to feed your soul. You will. But he doesn't mean by that, I'll promise you healthy kids. He doesn't mean that if they get sick, I promise to heal them. He doesn't mean I'll fix your marriage. He doesn't mean I'll give you three principles by which you can expand that screw so that it does fill up the hole. doesn't mean that at all. We do not live on isolated principles that tell us how to function in life. We live on a person. What he does mean is I will give you myself. Come to me. Feed on me. And what you get from me is me. Glorious. I'll open your eyes and so you can see me captivating, beautiful, stunning that I am. I am that. I want to show that to you. You can see that. Glorious and precious and soul-sustaining. That's who I am. I will give myself to you. Come. I know that some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. None. And you won't until you come. Until you come to this shepherd, follow him through this gate to find him. I know that others of you here intellectually know what I'm talking about, but you don't experience it at all. Or if you're like me, you struggle to experience it consistently. You won't experience it. You won't experience it consistently unless you consistently remain with him. You hold fast to him. You live on this person who is invisible, but is more real than you can imagine. Come to Him by faith. Close up to Him. Repent of wandering away into other fields looking for what's not there. Come to Him. Turn your heart back to Him. Say, God, I'm sorry. I wander. Help me to find You, to stay with You. Help me to find You when I read my Bible. Give me an experience of You with other people. Show yourself you're dependent on Him. He shows Himself in usual ways. Put yourself in those ways and pray, pray, pray that He show Himself to you. That is where life is. It isn't anywhere else. What does the shepherd do? He gives life to his sheep. He doesn't give life to his sheep somewhere else. He gives life to his sheep with Him. He's life. So the first question about function. What does he do? The second question is about manner. How does he do that? In what manner does he do that? 
And there are a couple of ways that this text answers that question. Uh, an implicit and an explicit way. First, briefly, the implied way. Verse 4 and verse 16 both mention something that will come up again next week, in a little more detail probably. The shepherd is away to something, but the sheep get there, notice, by hearing his voice and by following him. That's how they get there. So there's something in there about the, the voice, the spoken word, the instruction of the shepherd, follow me, and then his model of life and his instruction that lays out the path for us. We follow him, and he leads us to life. Follow him to where he is. We don't live on isolated principles alone, but we do live in accordance with the word. And there is no such thing anywhere at all ever as a disobedient Christian who's experiencing this abundant life. Does not happen. Absolutely does not happen. You cannot say, Jesus, show me life, give me life, open my eyes and let me see you. In the meantime, I'm going to wander around over here. Doesn't happen. He lays out in his word the path where he is found. Walk that in obedience. It's the first implied answer. How does he do that? He teaches us. He instructs us where life is found and how to get there. That's the smaller issue, though, in this passage. The second, the explicit way, is more central. How does the shepherd deliver us to life? How does he accomplish that? Well, verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 18, I lay it down of my own accord, having authority to lay it down and take it up again. The shepherd's manner, the shepherd does something that gives life to endangered sheep. He lays down his own life. That's what he does. When the threat comes, he steps in between the wolf and the sheep. He steps in between them there risking himself even to the point of death. Now get the analogy here. No shepherd ever intentionally dies for a sheep. You think about this. There's a pack of wolves. They kill the shepherd. Then who are they going to kill next? All the sheep. So the shepherd doesn't intentionally die in real life, in, in the, the real pasture of the world. That doesn't happen. But Jesus is trying to grab onto the idea of a sacrificing mentality. The hired hand's in it for himself. The shepherd is in it for the sheep. It's a sacrificing mentality. When danger comes, he steps in between to shield them, to protect them as best as he can. Jesus knows his own and his own know him. Verse 14, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. He knows his own sheep, just like he and the Father know one another. He's relationally connected to them and so he cares for them. And in Jesus' case, it is a deliberate laying down of his life. It is a deliberate sacrifice. For him to step in between us and danger, between his sheep and danger, is deliberate, and he knows what he's facing, and he knows what's going to come of it. He lays down his life upon the cross, substituting in his death, in the place of the death of the sheep. There's a trade there. How does he deliver us from death? By dying. How do we get life? From him. He gives us his own. That's what he's doing. Dies in our place, providing forgiveness by removing the wrath of God from us. Brothers and sisters, we were each enemies of God. Objects of his wrath. 
like everybody else in the world still is. We were objects of His wrath. That's the greatest of all dangers, the wrath of God, ready to be poured out upon you. And in between you and this wrath stepped this shepherd. This wrath justly deserved by you, ready to be poured out on you. The shepherd stands in and takes it. And the wrath of God is diverted from you to him. It falls fully upon him. This wrath that would take all of eternity to pour out adequately on me, and all of eternity to pour out adequately on you, and on you, and on you, and on each one of his sheep, all of that gathered together, poured out on Jesus. Wrath that the Bible describes with words like fury and anger that leads to things like sorrow and weeping and gnashing of teeth gathered together, poured on Him. And what comes to us instead, we deserve that, what comes to us instead, righteousness. Christ's righteousness given to us. And so before God we stand clean. An object not of wrath, but of grace. And a fountain wells up inside of us. Life, living water. Stunning. You've heard that. You know that. Let it wash over you. Let it grab you. Grab you here and grab you here. Let it move you. The Lord long ago promised to provide a shepherd to meet the deepest needs of His people. To lead them to life and to feed them. What is our deepest need? Our deepest need is to deal with the wrath of God. No other way that could happen. No human shepherd ever could deal with that. So God Himself came to do it. I myself will gather them together, will feed them and shield them. It's stunning. God poured His wrath on Jesus for you to give you life. For you if you're one of his sheep. If you're one of his sheep. That's the third question. First question is, what do you do? Provides life. It's abundant life in here. Second question, how? By teaching, but fundamentally, by laying down his own life to divert the wrath of God so that we could be an object of God's grace, have relationship with him, which is where the life is found. For whom did he do that? For his sheep. Emphasis on his. For his sheep. It's implied in the whole flavor of the analogy, verses 2 to 5. There are many sheep, and any particular shepherd only calls out his own sheep. He doesn't call that of the strangers, of the neighbors, of the other shepherds. He calls out his own. The whole thing is set up with multiple sheep, multiple shepherds, and this shepherd, then this good shepherd that we focus in on, is now going to interact with his own sheep. It's clearly implied here, and it is clearly stated as well. Verse 11 again, as well as verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep? As in like all the sheep everywhere? No. Verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. There's a group here called Jesus' own. He's particular. He's focused. There's a subset. There's a lot of sheep, and then there are Jesus' sheep, the ones that he knows. 
Is that like an intellectual no, like knows stuff about? No, Jesus knows everything about everything. He's God. He's talking about relational no. It's clarified for us. With, it's the same way that he knows the Father. The Son and the Father are in a relational knowing. Words very often used like that in the Bible. Same kind of knowing that he has with his sheep. His sheep and he know one another. They're related. It's not intellectual, it's relational. It's relationally connected to them. I care about them, he says. I know them by name, and so because of this relationship, I die for them to save them from danger. Those with whom I have no connection, they're not mine, they're not my sheep, they're not the ones that I call out of this Jewish fold, they're not the ones that I call out of all the Gentile folds throughout the nations. What he means by have, I have other sheep and other folds, I have to go call them too. He's going to call together all of his sheep from all these different folds, and there's going to be one flock with one shepherd. The Father has given some to the Son. You saw that in chapter 6 already. Here it is again. The work of God to lay down his life and give abundant life is focused on that some. And that might be new for some of us to consider. Some of you might be kind of wrapping your minds around that and thinking on it right now. Jesus does not walk up to the sheepfolds of the world and call out, Anybody want to come? Whoever comes, I will then declare you to be my sheep. doesn't work in that order. Why not? Because nobody would come. Given the nature of our hearts, nobody would come. Instead, the order is the other way around. He walks up and says, Anybody who comes is my sheep. And you'll know they're my sheep by the fact that they come. They are my sheep before I call them. Watch them come. And anybody who comes to me will be saved. Absolutely. Will find life. Absolutely. There's an order there. There's a huge difference in that. Do you see that difference? It's right here in the passage. He has sheep that he then calls. Let's try to make that practical. There's, there's a lot of theology in there. We can talk more about that if you want to, but I want to try to make this practical for what it means you and for me. First, if you're sitting there hoping and wanting to follow Jesus, you're sitting there thinking, I need that life. I need that salvation. I need that forgiveness. I need that abundant life. I don't know anything about contentedness. I don't know anything about rest or peace. I want that. And you're sitting there and you're hoping, I hope I'm one of his sheep. That very likely is him calling you. Come. Follow him. Don't fear. There is no such thing. It never happens that a person is sitting there willing and eager to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms, to repent from their sin, to stop trusting themselves, to trust Him alone. It never happens that that person is sitting there, comes to Jesus, and He says, no, I don't want you. Never happens. All who come will be saved, will find pasture. He promises it. Come. If you want to come, it's very likely that's Him calling you. Come. There's a message here for, for those who have not come and are not his visible sheep yet. You think about the, the, the example of the flock. You look in there, you walk up, you don't have any idea who belongs to whom. You only find that out when the shepherd calls and those come. I don't have any idea who belongs to him. Come. Come. He'll take all who come to him. He will. 
Come by faith. Come submitted. Come hopeful. He'll accept you. For sure. Promised. And He will give you salvation and He will give you life. I hope. I plead with you. Take Him up on that. There is a message there for those who are not believers yet. But the main message here really is for those of us who already are in the flock and we know it. We're following after Him. I'm doing it for a little while now. You know you're one of His sheep. The main point here, the bottom line, is for you to see that God is particularly focused on caring for you. We miss that too often. We look at a passage like this and we begin to wrestle with some of the theology and we end up being like Peter talking to Jesus at the end of the book of John. Jesus is talking to Peter. Peter wants to talk about John. And Jesus says, forget about John. I'll take care of John. I'm talking to you. It doesn't quite have that, maybe that's a negative tone. It doesn't have that negative tone. I'm, talk, let's, I'm talking to you, about you. John and I will deal with one another another time. Sheep, he's talking to you. He's talking to you about how he cares about you. What he intends for you. What his attitude is towards you. Look at this shepherd's heart. He shepherds his sheep. And he is fiercely motivated to have you cared for. Think about that Ezekiel passage. Why is God hacked off with the shepherds of Israel? Because they're disobedient? No, though they were disobedient. Because they're unbelievers? No, though they were unbelievers. Because they're dishonoring him? No, though surely they were dishonoring him. He's hacked off with them because of what they're doing to the sheep. His heart there, his concern is for the sheep. They're mine. I care about them. I want some certain things to happen. I want them to be gathered together. I want them to be taken care of. I want them to be nurtured and fed, nourished in here, physically taken care of. You don't do it. In fact, nobody else does it. I'm going to come do it. I'm going to come myself and do it. I want it so much to happen. It's his heart for you. If you're a sheep, that's his heart for you. I'm going to come down from heaven to earth to take care of you. You're in danger. You're scattered. You're food for the wild beasts of the earth. Speaking metaphorically here, you're in danger. God's going to come care for you. The greatest danger, the wrath due to you for your sin, He's going to take care of that. Your subsequent dangers, the tendency to wander away, He'll take care of that too. He'll give you good things to care for your heart by connecting you more and more and more to Him. He opens your blind eyes so that you can see Him. Be bathed in the glory of God. He's going to open your eyes day by day by day by day so you can see Him more and more consistently. By grace, that's God's heart for you as sheep. To give you what you most need and to give it to you more and more consistently. He loves you. He knows you. He cares about you. He is highly motivated to act in your behalf. He will and He does. Follow Him into life. Come to Him and say, Help! God, You better than me know all my troubles. You better than me know my tendencies to wander. You better than me know what the keys would be to fix me. Help! 
don't look at him. You don't have to approach him as a God who is stern, righteous, and holy. He is that, righteous and holy. Turns a stern face against sin, but a heart that is soft and tender towards you as sheep. He disciplines those he loves, yes, but it's always good. It's always for your good. He loves you. He cares for you. He knows you by name. He cares for you. Face him. Walk towards him and embrace him. Trust him. Jesus is the shepherd of God's flock, long promised, finally come, critical for life. Follow him to life. Let me pray. Lord, we need you. We don't even know how much we need you. host of us gather here need you in different ways. Some, Lord, need you to save them for the very first time from their sin and bring them into the family of God. Would you do that? Many need you to re-encourage us to follow you and to trust you. Some of us need to be disciplined. Do that in grace. Some of us need to be encouraged. Do that in grace. Some of us need a morsel of food or we're going to perish. Do that in grace. Meet the needs of your sheep, great shepherd. We love you, Lord. Help us to follow you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.